All right, uh, it's four minutes after 11. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, on 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. And uh, just while I'm mentioning 2XX, um, if you like our show or any of the 80-plus shows that are produced uh, by volunteers each and every week and broadcast on 2XX, seriously consider becoming a uh, financial supporter or if you've got some spare time, um, although the office is still locked down, but I'm sure we'll open up in the near future, uh, consider you can do training um, in all the technical sides of producing radio shows, doing interviews, um, et cetera, et cetera. Two uh, X is a really important uh, asset and has certainly been a supporter of this uh, program uh, over 15 plus years. So, uh, we're very appreciative to 2XX. Okay, we'll go to a song and then we'll come back with a piece um, by Vernon White about uh, Australia's approach to drug policy is not working. And this is uh, Cypress Hill and I Want to Get High. All right, that was Cypress Hill and I Want to Get High from the uh, album Black Sunday. Okay, it's eight minutes past 11, and we've got a story by Vernon White from the policyforum.net, October 13th. Australia's approach to drug policy is not working, and the subheading is, with drug seizures and arrests climbing, leaders should expect to see an impact on users, but overdoses and deaths have risen too. Australia needs to take the leap and decriminalise drug possession. The impact, drug addiction, the impact that drug addiction is having on Australians is both apparent and alarming. Australia's, quote, war on drugs in its current form has been a failure. While Australia has battled drug use in one form or another for decades, it has seen over the past five years a growing trend of drug overdoses and deaths, higher in many jurisdictions than at any time in recent history. When addiction and healthcare advocates have been searching for oh, sorry, while addiction and healthcare advocates have been searching for solutions to the surging overdose problem, for most, there is one common agreement. Drug addiction has been criminalised for far too long. It is time that Australia asked the difficult question, should forbidding drug use remain the focus of drug policy? Or is it time for an alternative course where the country makes a concerted effort to treat addiction as a health and social issue? A shift from Australia's current model of criminalisation to a health-based approach could be beneficial for those who use substances, but this wouldn't be at the cost of the police, justice system, health, social services or communities, who all could stand to benefit too. This is because decriminalisation would allow the Australian justice system to focus on suppliers who prey on drug users rather than those who suffer from addiction to these substances. Criminalisation just isn't working. Criminal prohibition of the possession and supply of drugs has been central to Australia's current war on drugs approach. But rising deaths show this is ineffective and inadequate. The stark reality is that if criminalisation was the way to address substance use, increased arrests would see a decrease in use and overdoses, but that is simply not happening. Okay. While the continuous succession of law enforcement highlighted by ever-increasing arrests, seizures and prosecutions cannot be argued, those successes haven't translated into a real impact on drug use and danger to the community. That should be taken into account by those people who listen to the, um, the uh, media release from the Victorian Police Commissioner. Um, well, yeah, this is well understood 
No. Drug seizures do very little to combat drug addiction and abuse and use. Even as arrests and seizures have increased, police have seen little or no impact on pricing or availability, indicating seizures are having limited or no effect on supply. This is well understood by many in Australian policing. Former Police Commissioner and ICE Task Force Commander Ken Lay has argued that Australia cannot arrest its way out of its drug problems. And former Australian Federal Police Commissioner Mick Palmer went further, arguing for the removal of criminal penalties for simple possession. This is because it would allow the police to focus their assets on the combating of drug trafficking, while eliciting eliciting a medical response to drug use and addictions. One thing above all is clear, with Australians in the firm grip of both an ice epidemic and a growing synthetic opioid problem, the plan is not currently working. A shift away from criminalisation might offer hope. Some may think that decriminalisation discounts the the accountability of drug users. Importantly, though, possessing drugs would remain illegal under decriminalisation. However, the impact of being caught with drugs would not be a criminal charge. A 214 report by the Global Commission on Drug Policy defined decriminalisation as the removal or non-enforcement of criminal penalties for use or possession of small quantities of drugs or paraphernalia for personal use. This approach is surely sensible in Australia. In most cases, drug use could and would still incur some kind of penalty for users, just not a criminal penalty. Decriminalisation of simple possession, uh, decriminalising simple possession and providing access to addictions treatment and community programs could replace criminalisation to the huge benefit of drug users and that of the broader community. Ultimately, Australia's currently, current approach does not work, but decriminalisation could offer addicts, users, a path to their rehabilitation and allow police and the criminal justice system a reprieve, reprieve sorry, troops, from their already overburdened workload. It's time Australia took this approach. Look. Pretty much. There's, I agree with the assessment that prohibition has failed, but I don't think his version of decriminalisation really goes far enough. No, to... no. And I think it's probably one of those mild-mannered options that he thinks that probably the right wing may be able to accept, not going too far yeah. into it, not offering... Um, something that went to the Legislative Assembly or the House of Senate or government um, and gave a great argument against, you know, just a mild change in the legislation rather than a radical change well, that people proposal would oppose. is less than what's been considered in our Legislative Assembly. Indeed, and, and what's been consi- considered around the world, yeah, basically. Well, that's a good point too. Yeah, and certainly what's being recommended by drug users themselves... Yeah, which is much more radical than that. Yeah, safe supply. Make it safe. We'll go to a quick song and then we'll go to this uh, big piece about um, analysis of the failure of the drug war in Mexico. This is The Stones and Mother's Little Helper. The classic Mother's Little Helper from the Rolling Stones. Okay, 17 minutes after 11 and as promised, here's the um, 
just to give some context, this is from a socialist magazine called Jacobin, and it's an interview between one of their contributors with the author of a new book uh, called um, Benjamin Smith, who's written a new book called The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade, and it's a question, question and answer. But it's entitled The Official Narrative About Mexico's Drug War is All Wrong, an interview with Benjamin T. Smith, jacobinmag.com. From assumptions about drug traffickers and police and elected officials' corruption to Mexicans' economic incentives for selling drugs, the Mexican drug trade has been drenched in sensationalist and inaccurate mythology. We need to totally upend our understanding of it. Mexico's drug war has officially claimed over 300,000 lives since it was launched by then-President Felipe Calderón back in 2006, along with over 30,000 unidentified bodies and over 90,000 missing persons. That's 90,000 wow, people. that's huge. And their family it? don't know where they are. No. Despite this cascade of death, billions of dollars spent, and fall of numerous arch-villains from Pablo Escobar uh, to El Chapo, drugs have probably never been as widely available, varied, and as affordable in the US and beyond, from Manhattan clubs to South African townships. Last year, more than 93,000 Americans died from drug overdoses in the United States, this is a new record and a rise of over 30% from 2019, driven by the new prevalence of the powerful synthetic opiate fentanyl, along with pandemic-related spurs to drug abuse and the ever-precarious access to healthcare in America. This begs the question, what was all this carnage unleashed, millions imprisoned and chaos spread across the world in the name of the war against drugs for? Good question. Mm. The drug trade is a major part of the international economy, worth between 426 billion US dollars up to 652 billion per year. Americans spent nearly 150 billion dollars on drugs in 2016, according to the Rand Corporation. This is a huge industry. Its profits flow back into the licit economy through banks, real estate, and other investments. Most of the drugs used in the United States either originate in or pass through Mexico on their way to consumers across the country. Xenophobic politicians and media in the US routinely transfer blame to Mexico for the flow of drugs into the country, to the exotic bloodthirsty narco. But the Mexican drug trade has a long history dating back to the 19th century. This history is connected to the state formation in Mexico and is a crucial part of the history of policing, politics and moral panics, from reefer madness to crack babies in the United States. Historian Benjamin T. Smith has written a most remarkable book entitled The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade, and it traces the history of the drug trade in Mexico. This book calls into question several of the basic assumptions about the trade, challenging popular narratives by revealing a story that breaks down the supposed barrier between the good guys and the bad guys, bandits and cops, drug cartels and the state. Jacobin contributing editor Benjamin Fogel spoke to Smith about his new book and the history of the drug trade in Mexico. So Benjamin Fogel is asking the questions, BF. Mm. You know, his first question is, this book seeks to change our understanding about drug wars and the drug trade. Could you give us an idea of what you think the official narrative or mythology about the trade looks like in the popular imagination? Okay, so Benjamin Smith replies, when I talk about the official narrative or mythology of the drug war, I'm talking about that simple moral binary which shapes most discussions of the trade. In this narrative, the traffickers are brutal, evil men with a proclivity for outrageous displays of violence. 
the authorities, like the cops and drug agents, on the one hand, on the other hand, are good, honourable men. The use of violence is reactive rather than proactive. When discussing the Mexican drug trade, there's a strong racial element to this. Traffickers tend to be poor, brown and Mexican. Drug agents tend to be white Americans, modern-day white herbs. It's a simple narrative that has shaped the, the crime news and the serious broadsheets, pulp detective no- novels and Cormac McCarthy's broader fiction, the overt silliness of Get the Gringo and the portentous nonsense of Sicario. Is there, for example, in the term cartel... Oh, it's there, for example, in the term cartel. American drug agents started to use the term cartel in the late 1980s to describe Mexican drug traffickers. The term cartel immediately brought to mind OPEC, price controls and the perversion of good old fair-minded Anglo-run capitalism. As it promised victory, and it promised victory. Destroy the cartel and you destroy the drug trade. Yet the DEA knew that the traffickers didn't operate as a cartel at all. These were networks of intermarried families and friends which all played small roles in creating the market ecosystem, this market ecosystem. It's a model which I think, after a century of propaganda, is almost hardwired into our subconscious. And it is one which I think still shapes most discussions of the drug trade in the war against it. I suppose I fear that some people will read this book and jettison its arguments out of hand because I start by basically stating my opposition to this predominative narrative. Which is what we do every week every on this week radio that, show, isn't as it? As we do, yeah. We're challenging the dominant narrative that yep. prohibition is a great policy. Indeed. Yeah. Okay, the next question that uh, Benjamin Fogel asks uh, the author, one of the major contributions of your book concerns the relationship between the state and drug traffickers. You argue that the best way of understanding the trade is as a protection racket, which historically has been run by various factions within the Mexican state. Can you explain how this works and how we should conceptualise what is usually just referred to as, quote, corruption? And Benjamin Smith replies, The term corruption is often bandied around to describe the relationship between the Mexican authorities and the Mexican traffickers. It forms a crucial part of that same drug war narrative. Why don't counter-narcotics policies work? Corruption. Why can't Mexico control its cartels? Corruption. But corruption is an imprecise and not very useful term. Not many Mexican politicians and policemen are partially uh, partially fulfil the orthodox political science definition of corruption. They use their position to line their own pockets. In brackets, although contrary to the classic definition, it's worth saying that they are not using public monies to do this. They are simply shaking down criminals. What I found surprising what there's another, is that there's another dynamic going on. For over a century, Mexican politicians and policemen have also exchanged money from drug traffickers and other merchants of illicit goods from booze to imported US products to untaxed coffee for protection from prosecution. Some of this money they've pocketed, no doubt, but they have used a surprising amount to build the state, so that's infrastructure I assume they're talking about, 
During the first half of the 20th century, while Mexico still had pretensions about being a social democracy, these state-building operations involved constructing schools and laying roads. But by the 1970s, as the Cold War heated up, it gradually became more trained on paying for garrisons and arming hit squads. Rather than terming it corruption, a better phrase for what the state was doing was running a protection racket, a strategy located somewhere between an orthodox state and a mafia operation. Is this corruption? It might not be terribly palatable, but it's a basic part of what states do. They extract money in return for protection. They do this to companies by charging them tax in return for guaranteeing property rights. All they are doing here is charging traffickers similar types of tax for not imposing the law. Rather than terming it corruption, I thought that a better phrase for what the state is doing was running a protection racket. It's a strategy located somewhere between an orthodox state and a mafia operation. That is definitely a, a different perspective, isn't it? <laughs> totally different way. So Benjamin Fogel goes on to ask, can you briefly sketch out the political economy that drives the drug trade from Mexico to the United States and the economic ex- incentives behind it? And he says, I don't think it's news to anybody that it is American demand that drives the Mexican drug trade. In the 1960s, 40% of high schoolers were smoking weed. And in the 1990s, Americans were taking 70% of the world's cocaine. Last year, around 100,000 Americans died from drug overdoses. In comparison, Mexico has never really had a drug market. A few soldiers and bohemians smoked weed after the revolution, but at least up to the early 2000s, the market for weed, cocaine, and especially heroin was actually minuscule. In the 1970s, when Mexico was providing 95% of America's heroin, survey takers were unable to find a single Mexican heroin addict in the country. This ceaseless US demand has merged with persistent poverty of the average Mexican. You can earn the average annual Mexican wage by working for 15 days in the United States. This combination of high demand and low wages has generated enormous incentives to produce and traffic drugs. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. If you're poor and you can make money from black market drugs. Or better money anyway. Yeah. yeah. There is no established way to assess these incentives, so I came up with my own. An estimate of the quantities of various narcotics the Mexican would have to sell wholesale in the US to earn the average annual Mexican wage. This calculation is not meant to mirror real life. Few individual Mexicans have had the wherewithal to sell the drugs that they grew on their own land directly to American users. Though some have, as journalist Sam Quinones discovered in the early 2000s, a handful of enterprising Mexican poppy farmers started to sell their homemade black tar heroin directly to the United States, OxyContin users. This, the figure does not take into account the comparatively minimal costs of drug production and processing or the less minimal costs of networking and bribery. Instead, what it does is suggest that why the drug trade has been so attractive to so many Mexicans. The results are telling. Over the past 50 years, to earn the median wage, a Mexican has had to sell an average of 700 grams of marijuana, 18 grams of heroin, or 66 grams of cocaine on the streets of the US. It amounts to weed weighing two cans of soup, coke weighing a tennis ball, or smack weighing just three US quarters. And this is only the average. During the economic collapse of the mid 1990s, it took only 1980s. Oh, sorry, 1980s. It took only 280 grams of marijuana 
and 4.8 grams of heroin to make the annual wage. Wow, no wonder. No wonder, yeah. It's a big surprise that they're drawn to it, yeah. It's a no-brainer. Mm. In Mexico, you could earn as much growing a single marijuana plant or a window box of poppies as driving a cab for a whole year. Wow. And it's yeah. this, not some kind of innate moral failing that somehow only affects those south of the Rio Bravo, that has located the drug trade so firmly south of the U.S. Uh, border. Mm. The next question is, in your book, you tell the story of the development of the Mexican drug trade through changes in the political regime or forces that run these protection rackets from local governors to different branches of the Mexican security forces. Can you briefly sketch this narrative and explain to us how it works? Okay. And he says, what I found surprising was that there is another dynamic also going on. For over a century, Mexican politicians and policemen have also exchanged money from drug traffickers and other merchants of illicit goods from booze to imported US products to untaxed coffee. I love the way he includes those other articles Mm -hmm. as tax-free items as well for protection from prosecution. Some of this money they've pocketed, no doubt, but they have used a surprising amount to build the state. During the first half of the 20th century, while Mexico still had pretensions about being a social democracy, these state-building operations involved constructing schools and I laying roads. I think you've done roads. that bit, Mass. I think we're yeah, on to 14. We... Page oh, 14. we have to. I'm sorry, my darlings. Never mind, you're probably getting a cof- cup of coffee. So, okay, we're up to... <coughs> At first, yeah... Yep. In the 1920s and 1930s. I'm glad you listened to me, Jeffrey. <laughs> While Mexico was in the process of rebuilding itself after, mm, after revolution, it was mostly local mayors and the local military commanders who protected the traffickers and smugglers from prosecution. Most of these were based at various towns along the US-Mexican border. A few were based where the morphine and heroin came in at the port of Veracruz and a few at the uh, various train stops up from uh, Veracruz to the border. During the 1940s, however, Mexico began in earnest to grow opium poppies, so that's due to the 40s, and convert them into morphine and heroin for the US market. Again, it was a question of demand. World War II cut off the US from its traditional drug suppliers in Europe and Asia. So Mexico almost immediately pulled in the slack. Of course they would. This was a much more geographically diffuse industry that spanned the mountains of western Mexico. So state governors started to take over protecting the drug growers and the drug traffickers from prosecution. They used state police forces to do this. State cops collected money from the traffickers and handed it, often explicitly, uh, to state tax collectors. It kept states like Sinaloa, Durango and Chihuahua afloat. That makes sense, Geoffrey, because the uh, Nazis had no access to the opium markets either because they were in the Middle East. Which is why they made methadone. They made fireceptone. They Mm. constructed fireceptone to take over because one of their generals was uh, a junkie too, wasn't he? I think there was quite a few. uh, Yeah, at least one of them. Well, almost everybody was using amphetamines to stop them from eating. But they had a particular general and somebody will, I'm sure Jack will 
send it in to me, that had a dependency on opiates. But getting access with op- to opiates was in- extremely important because of the um, what they'd done to soldiers, you know, the disabilities of soldiers and the wounding of soldiers. You need pain Without relief. opiates, yeah. you'd be totally lost. Yeah. yeah. No, it's important. No, and also within the country, I'm not just saying only soldiers, but that particularly soldiers would be the primary target for that. That would be the legitimate heart pulling, the strings, heartstring stuff. Anyway, sorry. By the 1970s, however, these protection rackets changed hands again. The United States was breathing down Mexico's necks and attempting to force a crackdown on the burgeoning marijuana and heroin businesses. Uh At the same time, some state governors were managing to use drug protection money to build up a fair amount of independence from federal Mexican authorities. Finally, the Mexican feds were facing an increasingly embarrassing array of guerrilla insurgencies, both in the mountains of southern Mexico and cities of the north. The Mexican authorities came up with a solution. They, and particularly the Federal Judicial Police, the FJF, PJF, took over the protection of drug traffickers from the state cops. This was a brutal and bloody business, which involved killing off the competition in the state police and torturing and cowing the traffickers and forcing them to pay. But at least, according to their own logic, the plan worked. The Americans were placated, the state governors saw their independence curtailed and the federal authorities could use this new source of cash to fight the dirty war. It's definitely a more um, nuanced uh, history, isn't it, it than certainly is. Mexicans are bad? I, I, look, I love what reading alternative histories do everything, Jeffrey, because just having a look at an alternative argument and different way of building up to where we get to, why we are where we are, from a different perspective, is worth discussing, if nothing else. Absolutely. Yeah? Just good to be confronted by... An alternative argument rather than the usual moral bullshit we're confronted with. The world is not black and white. Yeah, and this stuff actually locates it in uh, economically viable terms. Mm. You know, state building, school building, road building, it makes sense. And then once it's institutionalised... How do you get rid of it? Well, the only way is to end prohibition, isn't it? Well, yeah, but if you've populated the people near the border with your family Mm. and the police and the families are all related to each other... A lot of people don't want change. A lot of people don't want change and they're also related to the cartels. Well, so-called cartels, but they're the families growing their own opium and producing black tar, putting it, sending it over the border, it's just... And putting food on their family's where that table. Came from. That's what it is. That's yeah. just feeding their families. We'll go to a song and then we'll, f- we'll finish off this um, uh, Very article. interesting yeah. article, yeah. This is T-Rex and Children of the Revolution, given they were talking about the Mexican Revolution. All right, that was T-Rex and Children of the Revolution, and we will continue on with this article about uh, Mexico and the drug war. Okay, so one aspect, yes? Yep. So uh, Benjamin asks, one aspect that stood out about the history of Mexican drug trade, of the Mexican drug trade, one which has commonalities in terms of other mafias, as in Italy and Colombia, is how anti-left violence and right-wing thuggery were deeply connected to the drug trade. Can you explain the relationship between the Mexican drug trade and anti-left-wing violence? Which is something I've never heard of. No. Uh, 
the response is this is something that historic, historians like Sergio Aguayo, Alex Avina and Adela Cedillo have written extensively about. They make it very clear that particularly in regions such as Guadalajara or Southern Guerrero or the indigenous regions of the Chihuahua Sierra, the federal authorities linked up with traffickers in order to take out left-wing groups. They've each fashioned rich and detailed analyses of how this actually happened. I suppose where I differ, or perhaps where I extend this analysis, is to see these links between the state, drug traffickers and anti-left violence as something baked into the history of the formation of the state of Mexico. Drugs and the drug trade have always undergirded parts of the Mexican state, but during the 1970s, the section that demanded the funding was involved in a brutal war against left-wing insurgents. Another question. To turn the story uh, toward the current violence in Mexico, what changed in terms of the relationship between traffickers and the state in the 1990s? And how did this change the drug trade and the level of violence used to control protection rackets? In your words, how did the, quote, drug trade transform into the, quote, drug war? Hmm. And so his response was, in essence, the changes were twofold. First, the amount of money increased. Colombian traffickers moved from paying Mexican smugglers a set fee to cross every every kilo of cocaine to paying them a kilo of the drug for every kilo moved. This effectively put a zero on Mexican traffickers' immediate earnings. Second, the federal authorities that had controlled the protection of the state started to splinter. The ruling party started to divide into different warring factions and rival political parties started to win elections in key trafficking zones like Tijuana and Tuidad Juarez and key growing zones like Michoacan. Together, that's probably pronounced wrongly, never mind, together these two shifted Result, uh, shifts, these two shifts resulted in the traffickers themselves taking over the protection, tech, protection rackets. They just, they, just like the state before them, now provided drug smugglers with protection for a cut of the profits and they created small regional armies in order to do so. This probably started in Tijuana under the Arello Felix brothers, but it soon extended to other border cities like Juarez and Matamaros, uh, then to other growing and production zones like Michoacan and Jalisco. Jalisco, sorry. Trafficking organisations which had previously concerned themselves with moving products now got interested in controlling space. Running a protection racket, like running trafficking network, needs a monopoly. To function, it needs to be the only game in town. If not, the protection doesn't work. Smugglers won't pay you for protection if they also have to pay the army or the local police or another gang of heavies. Soon, these private protection rackets soon came into conflict um, as different groups sought a monopoly of certain zones. Trafficking organisations, which had previously concerned themselves with moving product, now got interested in controlling space, and they fought other organisations to do so. The drug trade became the drug war, or more precisely, a conflict between drug trafficking organisations to control distinct, geographically delimited protected rackets. And that sounds like when the violence really escalated. Indeed. And it was in the 70s, which is around the time the label, the drug war, came. So 71 was when... um, That that term came into popular President Nixon called it the drug war, yeah. 
Okay, next uh, question is, it seems uh, that what is termed a, quote, drug war or, quote, drug cartels no longer only concern themselves just with trafficking drugs. Instead, they control all sorts of rackets and extortion schemes, from growing avocados to oil theft. How has the political economy of organised or badly organised crime changed in Mexico since President Felipe Calderon launched his war on drugs in 2006? And BTS says, to be fair to Calderon... Drug trafficking organisations had started attempting control of other illicit and licit industries in zones under their control since the early 2000s. A group of former soldiers called the Zetas probably initiated this shift. As early as 2004, they were shaking down bars, brothels and DVD pirates in uh, Michoacan and Tamalopias. Uh, sorry. If, if that offends people. But soon other groups adopted these, strate- these same strategies. In doing so, they not only confronted groups they were trying to extort, like the petty criminals, the kidnappers and the fuel thieves, they also came into conflict with rival cartel protection schemes and state institutions, like the municipal police, which themselves had shaken down these industries for decades. So BF said, asked, given the horrific scale of violence associated with drug war in Mexico, do you think there are any solutions or lessons we can learn in in terms of how to reduce violence? What do you think of Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, that's AMLOS's, approach of hugs, not bullets? And he was a more left of centre president. He's the current president. Yeah. Okay, the the reply from the author is, I think many of um, AMLO's instincts are broadly correct. He's focused on the problem of the US arms trade, which has radically increased the Mexican homicide rate over the past 15 years. Mm. He's attempted to undercut the criminal gangs by offering young men better opportunities and better earnings than those offered by preceding governments. And he's refused to follow the US-inspired kingpin strategy, which simply fragmented organised crime groups and caused increased bloodshed. Every time they took down the head of a big um, criminal organisation, there were young up-and-comers. Always somebody standing right behind them, often a son or a daughter. Ready to take over. Ready to go, yeah. He, or at least those around him, have also, I suspect, set about attempting to renegotiate pacts with various criminal groups in the manner of the federal authorities of the 1970s and 80s. They've attempted to persuade them to move back to trafficking drugs rather than selling them inside Mexico and indulging in other more socially damaging forms of crime. On the downside, however, I think his attempts to offer greater opportunities for young men has been undermined by Mexico's struggling economy and then by the COVID pandemic. And his Soto Voce deals with drug traffickers were only possible because the US government under Donald Trump was more interested in chasing down poor, vulnerable Central American migrants. And building that bloody wall. Yeah, building his wall. Big, beautiful wall. $90 billion, God. uh, Yeah, so more interested in chasing down poor, vulnerable Central American migrants than eliminating drug traffickers. Whether he will be able to do this under Joe Biden, we'll have to see. Over the past two years, he's become increasingly beholden to Mexico's armed forces. His promise to send the soldiers back to the barracks has been completely shelved. The soldiers remain at the front line of Mexico's security and policing strategy, with all the attendant problems of lack of transparency, human rights infringements and its cannibalisation of certain organised crime groups. Mm. Finally, AMLO's administration, like those before him, has refused to come to terms with the rising problem of drug addiction in Mexico. Just like in the US, there is insufficient money spent on treatment and rehab programs. 
It is the small-scale warfare over drug-selling territory, over what in the US would be called the corners, that has caused much of the recent bloodshed in cities with big drug user populations like Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez. At the moment, Mexico's escalating murder rate seems to suggest that despite the good intentions, these residual problems are still undercutting these more promising policies. Mm. Uh, The author, Benjamin T. Smith, is a professor of Latin American history at the University of Warwick. He's published seven books, including the most recent, the one we've been talking about, The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade by Mm. Penguin 2021. Now, there's about five more pages of that, or maybe three or four more pages that Jeffrey's going to put it on the website. It's actually already on the... Oh, it's already on the website, It's on the News from the Drug Warfront Facebook page and Karma's Facebook page. Oh, great. Okay, so you can read the rest of it, but it looks really interesting. I reckon the books would be great too. Both books, the one by BS and BTS and one by BJ. Yeah, I think that both look interesting. But it is intriguing to have alternative scenarios, scenarios presented to us, not just the propaganda that's put out by... Look, unfortunately, Mexico has to put out its own form of propaganda to counter the crap that comes, comes from out the United of the US. States yeah. anyway. yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, get further up into Canada where they're putting out their own brand but devising a different strategy to get to drug users. Now, it, it sound, just sounds interesting. It was a really interesting interview. I'd love to have sat down and been a fly on the wall while they were talking. Well, not a fly on the wall because I would have wanted to interrupt. <laughs> but it was just really interesting stuff to read. I think it would be a good read, the book, too. Absolutely. Yeah, um, for anyone interested in drug policy and hopefully reform. Um, I believe you got some feedback about... Yes, I did. Of course, Jack sent in and said it was... Um, uh, Reichsmarshal Herman, Hermann Goering, uh, the Luftwaffe leader. Um, ask any time, he says. So, yeah, I can always get a reference from him because he hasn't lost his memory like I have. But I do know that from reading that book you, you gave me, Jeffrey, that the majority of German citizens were on amphetamine-type um, products and they'd been produced by, actually, uh, Hitler's doctor. And that was because it stopped Germans, German citizenry, citizenry from eating. It saved as much food as possible for trips at the front, although not many of them were eating. They were on amphetamine-type drugs as well. It's interesting that the Luftwaffe general was not on uh, amphetamines, or maybe he was too, but the Luftwaffe, they really needed to be awake to go on bombing raids, you would have thought. So it would have made more sense. Nonetheless... The point I was trying to make was that, you know, the supplanting of opioids or opiate-type drugs were um, – there was interdiction because of the breaking off the parts of Europe and particularly the um, East, the Middle East, where opiates or poppy plantations were and getting access to Germany, which was really the consume, major consumer or likely to be of opioid-type drugs. Well, German pharmacists were – World leading. I mean, they yeah, well, invented. Uh, yeah, uh, they per- kept the German pharmacists in Germany as much as they could. Even even the Jewish ones, they would tolerate as long as they were producing stuff that was useful for German citizenry. But yeah, but the role of drugs um, in the Nazi regime uh, is and just it, fascinating. Well, it certainly is, and. If you think about it, in every other country in the world too, if we had a legitimate alternative history of drug use 
in every country. Oh, it's not confined to Germany. You know, the yeah. stuff that we've heard coming out of uh, Africa, Jeffrey, was just fascinating. Was it not just no opiates except in, where was it, Nigeria? In the, uh, where they the doctor had to import her own um, morphine make her own products pain relief, and make yeah. them up. Excuse me, make them up yeah. downstairs in the hospital. It's just fascinating. Love to get a more in um, in depth discussion or investigation of uh, drugs, not just intoxicating ones, but drugs full stop. Because Absolutely. big pharma makes such a fortune out of these things, but. If Big Pharma can do it, so can the Mexican authorities and so can the government and so can the cartels. And But yeah. things would change massively if Prohibition ended, there's no doubt. If... Well, yeah, and let's have a look and see what happens in Colombia, huh? Yeah. It's well... because things have changed there. Um, not necessarily for the best, but it'll be interesting to see how they balance it up because they're going to have to balance it at some stage or another. They're going to have to come to some kind of compromise, either the availability of cocaine or coca products um, because they are produced there um, and the current leader of the country is making them available, basically saying let's not fight that. Um, so, yeah, it'd be, all be interesting to see how they went and how much what they approved of and. Some of that, some of those drugs are just entrenched in their in their culture. culture yeah, so the the involvement of culture in drug consumption has got to be considered. Well, you go to countries like Bolivia, chewing coca leaves has been done for thousands of years to Absolutely. deal with altitude and, and altitude sickness. And yeah. the the Bolivian, you know, the walking guides who chew it chew it regularly, and then. For the particularly the middle class white European um, people that they're tourists they're guiding for will have coca t coca leaf tea when they stop to rest and ha or to set up camp for the night at the top of the mountain as Makes they inevitably sense. do. I had a friend who went on one of those. Oh, and okay. They had coca leaf tea. She said it was great, loved it. Not just of course, not just for the rest that it gave them from the altitude sickness, but because of Gave the stimulation, yeah. 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 No. They were exhausted at the end of the day, but they felt much better and probably just stimulated a great discussion at night as well. I'll bet. But the cultural use of drugs throughout human history... I don't see how they can overlook it the way they do. Well, we shouldn't overlook it, no. Yeah, it's so, it's you, you so can't important. You say these drugs are bad and we're going to ban them and criminally penalise people that choose to use them. Well, yeah. I don't think that's freedom. That's just... State coercion and well, control. As, look, the the culture, the constant, um, I don't know, suppression of cultural values. If you are not, you know, a, a Presbyterian white middle class male, yeah, the the suppression of your culture um, is inevitable. The, given the way that society is conducted today. So we have to start appreciating other people's, other countries' cultural values, mm. not just our own indigenous, but, and, you know, we look at the, the indigenous regimes, indigenous uh, uh, cultures around the world and how they have been suppressed yeah. by Abused, Catholic or, or by Christian. Yep white male 
culture, you know, and the governments of country. Look at Canada, who we would like to approve of, but have a history that is as bad as, as ours, ours. Yeah. if not. But they're confronting it. At least they're going to do something yeah, about it. Although, trying to discuss them. Yeah. You know, we try to assimilate Indigenous yep. um, children or semi-Indigenous, semi-Indigenous children, sorry. But they say they just killed them in hundreds yeah. by sending them to Catholic um, schools. And it's just a grim story. Around. It's, it's a horrible, horrible story. But it's happened everywhere, hasn't it? It has, yeah. All right, Marion, thank you for... Uh, Another show? Oh, it was a fabulous show. Look, at really interesting stuff. And, darling, let us know if we drive you crazy. I don't mind sending you back to sleep. Yeah. Um, that's fine Tuesday morning anyway. But we do like to think that we're doing interesting stuff. Just introducing you to articles like that, um, that, you know, provide support, for certainly from my perspective, for the stance that we take. It's not just an emotional argument. It's actually a social, political, cultural, economic, you know, all those arguments are involved in everything that we're talking about. And nothing is ever just black or white. That's no. not meant to be um, an, a racist statement. That's simply fact. Yep. It's not one side or the other. Shades of grey. Absolutely. All along the line. So, yeah. Look after yourself, my darling. Indeed. And we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Take we care. We love you. I love you, Jeffrey. I love you too, Marin. We'll leave you with uh, Golden Brown. Take care, everybody. Bye, darling. Bye.